anyway, say you you wanted to get yourself to go to the gym, there'd be a really different approach that's likely to be useful for you if the reason you aren't going is that you find it miserable um, versus you you know you basically never make the time for it and you love it when you're there, but you haven't worked it into your schedule yet. So, I mean, that's a really simple example. It's really intuitive. Like, you need different solutions to those different problems. And there's a lot of different problems that can obstruct change. And we know a lot more about each of them. And we know a lot about what science says works in each context. So I really wanted to also communicate the importance of that diagnosis process and which different solutions seem to be most effective at tackling which kinds of problems. That was Professor Katie Milkman, who was our guest on the last episode of Behavioral Grooves. In that episode, we talked to Katie about insights from her new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. In this special standalone grooving session, Kurt and I are going to explore some of the ideas in more detail as we provide you with actionable ideas on how to apply those insights. So strap yourself in as Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Katie, have a fun and lively discussion on the impact and application of that conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our changing minds. That was an easy one, Tim. Easy, easy, changing minds. I'm still stuck on strap yourself in. That's well, that's where I'm, I'm like, really? Is it we're going to be-, be changing so fast and so hard that you better put your seatbelt on because, damn it, <laughs> G-forces are going to be pulling you out. I had the image of sitting in a buddy of mine who has a, a replica of a, an old Shelby Mustang, an old, Ooh. you know, yep. one of these, I think it's the G350, I think it was, but the seatbelts are four inches wide and they come across both of your shoulders and the buckle, I mean, you look like you're strapping into something that's going to take you into space. It's a Shelby. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. pretty damn fast. There you go. All right. It was. Okay. So, so where should we start here? Man, Katie is first off, just phenomenal. One of the nicest, nicest people in the entire world yeah. and just intelligent and insightful and has a damn good podcast too. So, you know, all of yeah, that, all yeah. together. We didn't even talk about that. We didn't get to the podcast. We, yeah, choiceology. Well, in, 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 other, in other sessions we did. So, so what yep. did you take away from this just in big general picture? Oh, the big thing, the big, lovely, warm hug aha for me is there's no one silver bullet. Right? No one that, silver bullet. Yeah, that we've just got to be willing to say, get out of our system one thinking and go, it's not just going to be one solution that fits every behavior change situation. There's going to be different behavior change tools that we bring to different roadblocks. And so right. unless we unless we understand the roadblocks, we're not going to be very good at applying the right tools, basically. Yeah. And I think, you know, she talks about it. So let's listen in to what she says here. But the self-help literature is mostly, you know, it's mostly guruism, not much science out there. And a lot of incorrect things, a lot of incorrect knowledge is being shared. And I felt like I also had a responsibility to try to correct that. One of the biggest misconceptions we already talked about a little bit is sort of like that there's a one and done kind of or one thing you need to know and then magically you'll be changed forever more, right? Set big audacious goals or visualize success or whatever, you know, pick your favorite guru's favorite thing. But what the research I've done over my career suggests is 
there's not a one size fits all solution. There are there are certainly lots of things that are helpful to lots of people, but the most useful advice I can give an individual or an organization that wants to create behavior change is to first try to figure out, you know, what are the obstacles in this particular context because they differ, right? So another thing, Tim, that I think from that is this idea of understanding what the obstacles are. It's this idea of not just looking to solve things with the a silver bullet, as you said, but it's also of you got to understand why you're not changing already. This is if you if it was easy, we'd already be doing it. So obviously, there are some impediments to that change. And if we can identify what those are, then we can apply the right tools in order to drive that change more effectively. Yeah. So the roadblock is why we're not changing behavior, right? Let's just be clear about that. It's the context, right? It's the environment that we live in because we know that a lot of our behavior is shaped by the current context that we're in. So if we're in a context that prohibits us from changing into the new behavior, we have to think about addressing the roadblock, addressing context. Or it could be the motivation. Are we really motivated to change that? Or why are we wanting to change that? And what is the deep underlying motivation? Is there something that is maybe not as motivating as we think? Or maybe we have ulterior motivations around different pieces, which also gets into self-identity. This idea of, you know, maybe it's because if I do change that, that may impact my own perception of myself or how others' uh, perceptions of myself. So what's the tribe's behaviors? And if I really want to change the things about this, am I going to be ostracized by the tribe that I want to identify with and a variety of other factors? So I think those are all key as we think through this. Yeah. And I think self-identity has been underplayed, actually. Mm. You and I have talked a lot about context and motivation. That Those are areas that are much more sort of visible on the surface, things we can identify. But self-identity is a cruel bitch of a master. You know, it's really, <laughs> it's really hard to address and go after and be self-aware enough to understand what it is and then let go of the old in order to take on the new. Well, and it fits into this idea of motivation. Yeah, we might have a system two thinking about, I want to lose weight or drink less or do whatever, exercise more. But if for whatever reason, our self-identity and our social identity yeah. has that as part of who we are, then we, if we change that, then who are we? And that's scary right. at a deeper level that doesn't necessarily get up into our conscious all the time. So yes, it is a bitch of a master, as you said. So, <laughs> you know, the other interesting piece though is, so identifying those roadblocks. I go back, as you won't be surprised about this, I go back to Kurt Lewin. And ding, his, ding, ding, we have a winner. <laughs> and his force field analysis. When you think about what he talks about, that there's these driving forces, those pieces that are driving us to do whatever the change is, but then there's the constraining forces, those things that are prohibiting us from achieving that change or that goal. And I think that's a really good piece that people, if you have not looked, you can Google Kurt Loop that will have um, pieces in the show notes here that you can look at. And the way of actually looking at that is really simple. 
and powerful that you can go in and look at this. And I also just want to go into Kurt Lewin also has a fantastic equation on behavior change, which again goes back to some of this context piece, which he says, B equals the function of P and E, which, all right, for these mathematical-minded people, they're going, oh, that's great. For us normal <laughs> folks, um, what the hell does that mean? Yes. Basically, it's, it's behavior is a function of the person, that's the P part of this, which includes their history, their personality, their motivation, all of those factors, that self-identity that we just talked about, and E their environment. So that's the context. That's the both the physical and social surroundings that they're in. And so if you're driving behavior change, that behavior is driven by those two things. So obviously one of those two things needs to change. And when we think about that, there's the constraining forces that are prohibiting that behavior change. And then there's the driving forces that are pushing us to that. And oftentimes it's easier to remove the constraining forces than it is to add to the driving forces of that. I think we're going to need to keep a running tally on how often Kurt Lewin comes up in our grooving sessions. <laughs> and if we did that, how many times I initiated that conversation versus you? Because I'm pretty sure that's a Wait, 99 yeah. to 1 thing. And, and at the same time, I just want to say one more thing on Kurt Lewin. I am a huge fan as well. Not nearly as big a fan as you are. We are all fanboys in our own rights of different people and different things. things. And so there you go. All right. So from an application perspective on this, I think one thing that listeners you can take away is one, look for the roadblocks to the behavior change and identify those before you start trying to implement behavior change techniques. And then two, make sure that you're not just putting all of your eggs in one basket, that mm-hmm. you're not just saying, if this is the silver bullet, if I just temptation bundle, I am going to change my entire worldview. No, take a look at different things. And, and in Katie's book, she mentions a whole bunch. We only talked about a few things here, fresh starts and you know some of the flexible schedules and some of the others, but she has elements on temptation bundling. She has cue-based planning behavior tracking, advice clubs, commitment devices, gamification, all sorts of things. So A, go out and buy your book to get a whole different perspective on all these different mechanisms that you can use to drive behavior change. But also just make sure that you're not thinking that, A, if I just do this one thing, I'm going to get the results I need. Make sure you're utilizing a number of different methods in order to achieve that change. Exactly. What else did you want to groove on, Kurt? Well, we talked a lot about flexible Fernando versus Rachel, uh, rigid <laughs> Rachel, um, which I can't say flexible Fernando without doing a really bad accent on that. But intended to be sort of Latin sounding. Is that the idea? Fernando. Isn't that a Latin? I, I don't yeah. know. I guess it is. But I really like this concept and the research that Katie and her, that others have done on this is just reinforces something that I think I strongly believe, but didn't necessarily have the empirical evidence to back it up. Maybe it's just because that's the way I work and I'm not very good with rigidness pieces of things. But this idea of having a flexible schedule, flexible ability to do things, I thought was really key. I think it's hard when we, one of the strongest behavioral 
biases that we have is status quo bias, that we're going to keep doing things the same way unless there's some significant interruption, right? And it's it's hard to get out of being a rigid Rachel in some things that we develop these habits and routines and we think, well, we develop them for good reasons. And so we should just keep doing them. And I, I th- what struck me about the conversation with Katie is it's okay. Of course, you know, the focus of the flexible Fernando is you've got this habit and routine and you want to stay at it, the going to the gym or eating right or, you know, whatever it is. But there's a, a broader story for me about it's okay to let go of old habits that aren't working for you. You know, it, it's okay to change things up. Be flexible. Yeah. You know, be aware. Be aware. So that was a, a big message for me. I think that's a that's a broader concept than what we even talked about. This idea that be flexible in your life, much less just yeah. these habits. It's looking at life and saying all right, what are the things that I'm doing that I'm just doing out of routine habit that may not be providing me the benefit or the outcome that I really want to? And should I keep those? Or do I have to keep doing those as often or in that schedule that I want? I may still like right. to do them, but is is the world going to end if I don't? I don't know, you know. Well, so how does that fit with James Clear's big mantra is, you know, it's okay to miss one day, but never miss twice. So what I think what James was saying is this idea that you have that flexibility within your day. So you're looking at your workout routine, your exercise routine, and give yourself a free pass if you miss. It goes back to what Katie was talking about with that, hey, if I'm going to set up an exercise goal, I'm going to set the goal as this bigger audacious goal of seven days as opposed to just setting the goal for five days. But I'm going to set that goal seven days with these two free days, these two get out of jail free card days that then provide you with the motivation for the big goal, but the flexibility that life happens. And I think that is really key as we think through how to set up the schedules, the routines, the different pieces that we have. And, you know, if it's the mantra of never miss twice, if it's I got two free days, I got anything else, that's all really important. Katie frames this argument in an important way, right? The way that she thinks about saying you get two free days every week, Mm -hmm. I think is an important differentiation between saying you never get more than one miss ever. Yeah. The burden of that is huge, but saying, okay, you can miss twice every week if you want to, you don't have to. Right. You know, I, you know, I mean, I've been through periods when I was, you know, training for long runs where I absolutely built in rest days and didn't feel like I needed a rest. So I, I went ahead and ran. Yeah. So that, that's, that's totally cool. But it was nice to have that mental flexibility. Yeah. I think that, that that's a really great thing to have. Well, and I think, too, many people on diets, they say, oh, well, Saturday is my cheat day. Well, this kind of says, maybe just have a flexible cheat day during the week. Right, right. Because Saturday may not be the day that you want it, that, that you're, you're tempted to cheat. You might be going out on Friday, and that's the time where you want to have that extra beer and have that ice cream at the end of the day. Or that could be every day in my case, but that that's regardless. Um, but the idea of making your work that routine have that flexibility built in. Now, I think you have to also understand how you show up to these. If you're the person who, 
all right, I give myself that cheat day every week and Monday is like, oh, I'm cheating today. Then you have this pain for the rest of the week. Maybe you should be a little bit more rigid, more of a rigid Rachel, but I think that's it. Self-aware. Yeah. Self-aware is good. But again, I think the application from this is think about how you're setting up your routines and your habits and make sure that you provide yourself with some flexibility because life does happen. And we know that, hey, streaks are powerful. Those big audacious goals are powerful, but you need to be able to allow life to intercede and not get dejected and do the what the hell effect when that happens. So. Exactly. Exactly. Anything else? You want to do one more? Uh, I was fascinated by the conversation we had about Max Bazerman and the yeah. the way that he utilized the placebo effect <laughs> and the fact that Katie. Well, actually, let's let's listen to how Katie talked about this. So I wrote Max this very goofy, nerdy email. I actually found it. <laughs> I dug it up and and the email basically said, Max, what's your algorithm? I literally said, what's your algorithm? Like, how are you training? I, yes, I am. I truly am a nerd. I was like, how are you training? All these students are all turning out so well. What do you do? I want to do it, too, because I want to help these amazing people who are walking into my office succeed the way you help people succeed. And he wrote me back an email that I was, you know, very humble, classic Max style, basically saying the, the key message was like, it's not me, it's them. They're amazing. These amazing students just keep walking into my office and they would succeed whether I was there or not. It's not me. So only Katie would use algorithm, right? I mean, that's just. Oh, a, I know. What a total nerd. Total. Yeah. <laughs> what's your algorithm, Max? It's like, <laughs> and she wrote it in an email. I love that. But this idea of, all right, so. There has to be something that is going on because Max is such a great output. You look at all of these people that he was mentors to and what it was. And I love that she came around to the realization that it's these couple things, right? It's this idea that he just expects the best from his people that, no, it's not me. It's that I just get bright people and there's a placebo effect. And I think there's also this element of maybe the Pygmalion effect, which uh, was by uh, initially kind of described by Rosenthal and Jacobson back in the early 70s, where they did the, the fun research with the kids and basically telling the teacher, don't let them know. But these kids scored really good on this uh, intelligence test, and they're going to be high performers. And they hadn't. But by the end of the year, because they had told the teacher that that those te- these the kids actually on quantifiable tests did improve. They were like their in their IQ yeah. levels went up to to match because the teachers changed their the way they interacted and how they talked to them and the expectations they had on them. And the people then those kids then you know kind of got that feeling that hey I'm better, which is going back to what you know Max. Does. And I think he probably did that along with like saying, no, you should mentor these younger junior people. Yeah. It also at some point becomes a halo effect, right? Because Max builds this incredible reputation for his own research and he ends up having some stars uh, as students, as grad students. And then everybody else kind of benefits from that. I would certainly read an article if I saw that either Max co authored it or Max was a, uh, the advisor to that student just because Max was the advisor. So, so there's a little bit of uh, 
you know, pixie dust that ends up getting, you know, that, that falls down onto those who are, who are doing that work. And that's a positive thing. Yeah. It's kind of like me hanging around you, you know, it's this idea that, Hey, my, your halo just shines over and people go, God, Kurt's actually not as dumb as I thought he was. Obviously he's hanging out with Tim. So the reason that, that I need a little light around me is because I'm in your shadow all the time. (laughs) Oh (laughs) Oh, man. No, but I think that's true. And I think the halo effect and the Pygmalion effect are actually interesting. It'd be interesting if there's research done on the kind of overlap of those two, because when you think about the Pygmalion effect, it's like, I talk to everybody about how wonderful you are and how intelligent you are. And so they start to think that you are bright and intelligent and kind. And then when they interact with you, you feel that maybe, again, it's not explicit. It's this implicit kind of element. Right. And it changes your self-identity. Going back to self-identity and different aspects of it. Now you think that this is it. And I think it's a wonderful thing. So again, from an application perspective for our listeners, if you're in a leadership position, you can apply some of those same aspects to what your employees are doing. So A, think the best of them, right? Tell them that they will succeed. Tell everybody that you know, again, within reason, if they're just total schlucks, you you know, if you go, oh, they're the brightest person I ever know, people are going to look at you kind of weird. Yeah. But there is this element of saying, hey, if you can promote how smart those people are, how good they are, then translates back to them actually being good and smart. And so there's that. And then building that community. So that building that family, as Katie talked about, and having your senior people mentor your younger people, and maybe even having your younger people mentor your senior people on certain areas of expertise that they have, it lends itself to building that self-identity around those people and to a stronger, more better workplace. Yeah, yeah. Well, John Levy is building communities, right? It's all about building these these networks of people, uh, advice networks, right? It, it, groups that are going to advise you and and provide influence and uh, when necessary because you build relationships with them. Well, and because because then you're giving advice, right? That's what yeah. Katie's thing on these advice networks are yeah. is a you're asking for it, but you're also being asked to give advice. And when you teach, it's probably some of the best ways to learn something and to reinforce that inside yourself and to think about how it's actually done. So all of that comes into play. Absolutely. Can we just mention just quickly the Behavior Change for Good project that she's working on with Angela? Oh my God. What Fantastic, isn't it? A, bringing together all these fantastic, if you ever get a chance, Google the behavior change for good and look at the people who are doing the research. Talk about halo effect. Oh my gosh. That yeah. is like the, the who's who in behavioral science right now, but also just this idea. I love the title, uh, you know, behavior change for good. And one of the things that I think that is really great about it is beyond just the great research they're doing. It's this reinforcement that, Hey, when we're changing people's behavior, let's make sure it's for good that it isn't for evil. And I think from our perspective, we tend to drive, when we're thinking about our own behavior change, it's typically, you know, we all want to change for good for ourselves, but sometimes we can apply some of these influence or behavior change initiatives on others or with others or as part of our team or organization. And just make sure you're doing it for good and 
looking at that. Wit, and that takes some self-awareness. That also takes some intentionality. We talked about we have talked about intentionality a lot in in these podcasts because it makes such a big damn difference that it's really important for us to actually think about the consequences, not rationalize, oh, of course this is good for someone else. I think it's going to be great for me. Oh, I'm sure they're going to love it too. Well, <laughs> you know, we've got to get out of that rationalization trap and really think considerably and intentionally about what might that person be experiencing now and what might this behavior change initiative mean to them? What, how might it actually Im- impact their lives? Like the, the classic example for me is the uh, City Block Health when they're trying to help get single moms who are having trouble getting to, or they're, and they're pregnant, getting them to the hospital for their prenatal work. And a bunch of people raise their hand, a bunch of do-gooders, and they say, I, I want to be a volunteer. I will go and pick those people up. And you go, that's a great idea. Let's send them out. And guess what? They're, they're a whole bunch of retired white guys, and they're showing up at the houses of and apartments of young people of color, women of color. And it's like, that did not work. They, those women did not feel safe getting into the car of a random stranger who was old and white. There's just a cultural difference there that they had to rethink, oh, wait a minute, let's do something good, but we have to do it in the right way. I have to ask, because when you said this idea of we do things because, hey, you'll like this because I like this. Have you ever gotten those gifts that are, you go, oh, thank you. And the people are so excited. Yeah, I got one for myself and I loved it. And it's just absolutely great. And you're going... (laughs) Great. I have no use for this Luke and Flunker, yeah. you know, pancake mixer. <laughs> hey, that's just beer. Come on. It's like, you know, everybody likes beer, right? Isn't I mean, that's the only gift I ever give to you. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to get out of ourselves, right? Uh, it, it's, it's really hard to get out of ourselves. So thinking about behavior change for good, thinking about the ethics of developing some kind of persuasion or influence over someone else. We've got to be thinking really carefully and intentionally about how it's going to impact them. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that pretty much wraps us up. We hope that you have enjoyed this and that you have a few meaningful insights that you can start applying to your life or work today. Make sure that you go out and look for the obstacles if you're trying to do behavior change, understand what those obstacles are that are getting in the way of you changing, identify those, and then use a variety of change techniques to get around them, over them, under them in order to drive that change, right? (laughs) Right, Right? right. If you're a business leader and you have a direct report that you are yearning to get ahead, give them a chance to lead, to take responsibility for a project, promote the hell out of them. Uh, expect the best of them, tell them how great they are and do it in an environment where they won't be punished for their failure. Absolutely. So, okay. So see what you can do to be more like a flexible Fernando also. Like make flexible sure- Fernando. Fernando. Make sure it's okay to miss a commitment and to be okay with, you know, returning to it, right? To picking it back up. Don't give in to the what the hell effect. I guess that's really the important thing. And finally- Remember to subscribe and listen to next week's episode on how behavioral science can be used for impacting marketing for good with Matthew Wilcox. And with that, we hope that this week you go out and you find your groove.